0: You only get into it, out the game what you put into it, Shelley.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and
1: soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you yeah. regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that.
0: Don't you blame me? Oh, Hello and welcome to Man Marking. You've just got me today in the chair, and uh, I'm joined by a really special guest today. It's Tracy Tombides who is the mother of the late Dylan Tombees, who was the West Ham United footballer who sadly died of testicular cancer back in 2014. On the back of that, Tracy and her family set up a foundation called DT38 in order to raise awareness about testicular cancer. So I'm going to get straight into today's episode and hand you over to Tracy. And she's going to tell us a little bit more about Dylan and about his story and also about why they started DC38 and what it is that they're doing. You're listening to Man Marking. Man Marking.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, My name's Tracy Tombides. I'm the founder of uh, a charity called DT38. Uh, It is a charity that raises awareness of testicular cancer, and it's in memory of my son, Dylan Tombides, who played at West Ham uh, and who wore the number 38 shirt as a squad number and who had his uh, number retired uh, the day after he passed away. So that's that's the reason that the DT38 is...
0: Is with us today and uh, I'm sure people can can tell from your accent Tracy that you're not originally from the UK or, or originally grew up in in the UK and from what I was reading on the DT38 website you, you you moved around quite a lot when um so went when Dylan and you and your other son was 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 younger were you kind yeah. of pretty used to moving around quite a bit
1: not really. I mean, I'd always travelled a lot. Uh, Jim and I travelled. We like to travel a lot, and um, it was a case of of um, we had an opportunity to go to Macau, and uh, the boys were eleven and thirteen at that stage, and we just thought it was a really good opportunity for them, educational wise as well. And um, yes, yeah, so we took the we took the opportunity to go. Um, you know, they went to a local school up there, and they both learnt. Mandarin and Portuguese uh, I learned Cantonese and um, yeah it was a, it was a real eye-opener, it was a real education for us all
0: can you sp- can you still speak Cantonese now then
1: I won't starve in a restaurant my my restaurant Cantonese is pretty good and <laughs> um, and the boys managed to retain the swear words of both those languages so you yeah. know the important stuff yeah absolutely football pitch,
0: yeah. <laughs> and then you obviously the, the, the family all came over to to London when when Dylan signed for for West Ham how did how did that all come about
1: well when we went to Macau they um they got into um at school with a really good group of boys they were you know we still keep in touch with them today and they um so they got to know the the football out there they played five-a-side cage football and they'd play against like 50-year-old men it was just really really competitive out there and so they sort of like got to back playing like probably more than that, what they were actually playing in Perth. Um, and I happened to be traveling home to, to Perth um, on one of my trips and I caught up with one of the West Ham scouts out there, Mike Lee, who was a, a family friend and had coached the boys from a young age. And they um, you know asked how they were doing and at that particular time, Dylan had arranged to have um, trials out at um, Porto and Sporting Lisbon. And Mike, uh, said to me well look I'm heading to West Ham in August would you please come there first before you go out to Portugal and I said yeah absolutely so, um, so Dylan and Taylor and Jim came up in um, I think it would have been around end of July um, to West Ham for trials and Tony asked Dylan after two weeks to stay for another two weeks and absolutely loved him and um, he said to us that you know, if Dylan was living up here, they would sign him immediately. And at the time, what Tony didn't know was um, that I had the opportunity to move up here uh, with my work. And so we said to the boys, well, this is, this is your opportunity. You want to take it? And they said, yes, please. So um, the family moved up here in November and and Dylan signed with West Ham um, in November, 2008.
0: How did you all kind of find the move? I mean, that, that, you know, it's you know you've already done the, path to Macau and then over to, to to the UK. How did you all kind of adapt?
1: No, it was pretty good. Obviously, you know there was while I love Macau and I have such wonderful memories of it. You know, you're still speaking with people that English isn't their first language, and so um, you know to come to an English-speaking country and play football, the, the boy, it was just it was a it was a good fit, and the boys really thrived, and uh, you know they went to a, one of the local schools. It was only, it was like a year later that they actually found out that Dylan had a brother. And so they, they wanted to have a look at Taylor as well. So it was, you know, probably um, a couple of years after, after Dylan signing, Taylor joined the club as well. So from that perspective, um, you know, both the boys up here living away from home and their friends. It was compensated by the fact that, you know, both of them were at West Ham United and that's a pretty big deal for them.
0: And from what I could could read on, on on the website and some of the other things that, that that have been written about about Dylan from when he was was younger and and Taylor as well, they were kind of the type of lads who were probably very similar to myself. Never without a football, kind of that was the the, the obsession as a child.
1: Oh, definitely, definitely obsession. And and you know, one of the the beautiful things about. Perth and Australia is, is the weather all year round. So they would play football for the main season. And then in the off season, they just, they swapped every year. They'd play basketball, they'd play tennis, they'd play, you know, baseball, T-ball out there. And, you know, they really enjoyed um, the variety of sports. So, yeah, they they always had a ball at their hands and their feet. And, you know, got some wonder, wonderful remem- memories of, um, you know, I, I don't know whether you ever played foursquare square or anything like that, um, where you, you, we just had, all brand new paving laid out the back of our house and uh, within eight hours they'd drawn a four square uh, marker on the ground but they used permanent marker they didn't know <laughs> what they were spraying so um you know, you know day one we had this permanent four square uh, on our paving out the back so yeah, no, they would know though they just always had a ball at their their feet or in their hands it's a pretty good lifestyle
0: the original um diagnosis that the. That- That Dylan got was when he was at the under seventeen Wales Corp. Is that right?
1: So the original diagnosis was uh, for us was in April, and that was the year in two thousand and eleven that West Ham were struggling to stay in the league, and they were in a relegation battle. And from what Dylan tells me, you know, the mood around the club was a little bit sombre, and he didn't want to. He didn't want it make it any more sombre I suppose he didn't want to impose on anybody so he decided to go to a GP um and as a as a 17 year old boy you know mum doesn't come in with him and dad doesn't go in with him so he goes in and he comes out and the doctor had told him that it was just a cyst and people live with cysts every day and um, there was nothing to worry about so from my perspective that's exactly what you want to hear from a doctor There's everything's fine don't worry you know it's something that's you know not life-threatening or anything like that so from my naivety, um, you know, I, I didn't know to go and insist on an ultrasound or, or follow anything up like that. Um, and, you know, from the point of view of, of had Dylan gone to West Ham, what would have been the situation? I know that um, it would have been picked up early. But, um, yeah, it wasn't meant to be.
0: I presume then because it, it, it for, for, for a lot of, of that age at 17 and it's kind of one of the the things that we'll get onto a, a little bit later and, and a lot of the work that you do with the with the charity is around sort of making sort of young lads aware I suppose to go and do those checks uh, it, it seems quite um I mean I know for a fact that probably when I was 17 I might not have even gone down to the GP I, I presume that, that you know it, that, that that must have been quite a sort of strange time I guess guess for you as a as a as a family really to have to have even gone to that's there
1: Yeah, look, you know, I I would I would be lying if I didn't say to you I did the whole Google doctor thing, and um, you know just to try and reassure yourself that there could be so many many options. And look, they there were, Um, but at the end of the day, you know, getting down to a doctor, you know, we did that. We you know we encourage everybody to do that, and it still wasn't enough. So for us, it's like just giving them the tools to actually turn around and say, you know, guys, this is what you need to insist on. So, um, yeah, from, from that perspective, it was, um, you know, I, I think that Dylan did the the right thing in terms of being somebody that actually stood up and went, you know what, I've got a problem and I want to go and get it looked at. And, um, yeah, look, you know, as we said, the, you know, we won't know if he had gone down another track or if he'd gone to the club, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, had he involved the club or had we involved the club that um, we would have, got onto it straight away but then you know there's so many consequences that after that, that 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 Dylan thoroughly loved and thoroughly enjoyed you know maybe he wouldn't have gone to the world cup maybe he wouldn't have been on the bench for the last game of the season maybe he wouldn't have got a you know a five year night contract maybe you know all the sort of thing that that adds on to it afterwards and so and I don't think he would change any of that because he genuinely thought that this disease he was going to beat
0: and um, you know we 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 you get to that point where he's at the under 17s world cup and he gets the 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 diagnosis how did you do you remember how you reacted at the time tracy do you remember how you felt it at, at that time
1: yeah absolutely um so you know as with tournaments you never really know when you're going to be exiting them so you can't really plan ahead and book so the you know when australia got knocked out the earliest that um, Dylan and Jim could get back here was the sixth of July, so um, they decided to go to Cancun for a, for four or five days. And uh, I remember Dylan Dylan telling us that um, he got a voicemail from uh, the Australian doctor, and he just had this gut feeling that he needed to call him back, and he did. And he, you know, the doctor told him that his drug test came back positive for a banned substance, or he had a tumor. And you know, he knew that he hadn't. Taken anything that was banned, and so he knew what he was dealing with. And I remember the phone call. Um, I was I was numb for about probably five to ten seconds, and then just went into mum mode, which was no worries, leave it with me. I got in touch with the West Ham doctors. They turned around and organised everything for him to do on the Monday after he got in on the on the Friday, and from you know from Monday onwards everything was was planned and ready to go and we we got the ultrasound done we got confirmation that it was testicular cancer he had his, his testy removed uh and then we started treatment as soon as we can so you know the the whole um treatment was done as swiftly as, it, as they possibly could do and um, you know they've been fantastic ever since
0: and from what from what I've read Tracy about Dylan and around the way that he kind of reacted to the news and the way he took everything on. I, I mean, just from the, the sense that I get from, from you as an individual, you seem like the type of people who would be, okay, well, how do we, how do we deal with this? What do we do next? How do we kind of go about this? Was that sort of the sense that you, that you had as a family really at that time?
1: Yeah, look, it was. And I, you know, we sat down and obviously talked about, about it because we got all the information from, from the doctors uh, at the club and you know, one of the things that Dylan was 100% across was that he was gonna be a cancer patient for a short time, but a professional athlete for a long time. And he wanted to make sure that he was that professional athlete throughout his, throughout his whole cancer treatment. Um, so, you know, I mean, he even planned to have chemo on a Friday after he trained so that he could then have Saturday, Sunday to recover uh, and go back to training Monday to, to Friday. Um, you know, during, during the eight or nine cycles of chemotherapy that he had, some were varying, some were like five days in hospital um, and then recover for three weeks. And then other treatments were um, as, a, as an outpatient where he would go in in the, in the afternoon and have, um, you know, there for three or four hours having his dose of chemo. So, you know, depending on what the um, cycle was at the time, he was able to plan that around training. And he would go down to the club every morning um, you know, he still was a was a. He loved to joke and laugh and play practical jokes on people. I don't know. I think us Australians get away with that a little bit more <laughs> than others. I don't know, but that was what he wanted to do. And you know, I, and I know that, you know, um, Sam Allardyce at the time was very complimentary about his, you know, belief of of being a footballer and and this disease not setting him back at all.
0: Yeah, it was. It it, it almost carried on pretty much playing throughout the whole of the, the treatments and, and I thought, you know, reading that, I mean, obviously the, the, the physical toll that the treatments obviously takes on on people to be able to continue the training and the, and, and the playing and what have you. Did that surprise you or was that kind of, you know, what you knew of your son and, and, and what the type of person that, that he was, that that's how we would face it?
1: Yeah, no, it didn't surprise me, but it did because, you know, this is my first um, exposure to something like cancer so I didn't know what to expect either. And, you know, he he had every right just to curl up in bed and and not get on with the day and just but he didn't, you know, every day, he'd be getting up and going to training, you know, the club looked after him really, really well, you know, they made sure every, every, you know, few weeks that he had bone density scans to make sure that his bones could be put under the rigorous training that he was putting himself under. Um, you know, there'd be some times when he would be able to join in with the full contact games and there would be times where he, he couldn't join in because um, whether it had been a minor operation or just whatever he was having done at the time, you know, they would, um he would join in with all the, the drills. But when it came to the, the full contact games and that, you know, he he went and did his drills on the other side. So he was always involved. He was always doing something. Yeah. And he just loved being around the boys because that made him feel normal. That made him feel that
0: you know he was part of the the club, and then he, he, he actually made a, his professional debut, didn't he, in in 2012, which was against um it was against Wigan, wasn't it in the in, in the League Cup, um, which was just over a year after the original diagnosis. Which I mean, just reading it, I just thought it was absolutely incredible. To be honest with you, how how was that 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 day, that moment, and and that whole occasion for you?
1: Yeah, look, it was it was a fantastic occasion, and, and true to Dylan. He, you know, he came home and you know, did what he he would normally do, grab something to eat. He went up to the um the driving range, which he loved to do on a on a regular basis, and then come home and went, Oh, by the way, mum, I'm I'm playing in the cup <laughs> game. And I'm like, what do you mean? I have to get tickets. Like, and so you know, I spoke with his physio at the time, John, and he'd he'd organized, obviously Dylan got tickets for the game, so we had some. And and Taylor and Jim were actually over in Iran, I believe, at the time, um, with Taylor playing with the um under 17s. Uh, the joeys so he you know Jim and Taylor didn't actually get to see Dylan's debut um, which you know I'm, I'm sure is a is something that they would have loved to have, have done but just you know I, I remember sitting in the stands with such a sense of pride and the the um, a young boy behind me saying to his mum mum why has that boy got no hair and she said oh I, I don't know I don't know what the reason is and and I just turned around and I said oh the medicine that he's having is making his hair fall out and his mum was just really quick to go, "Oh, what medicine is that?" Like And I was like, "Well, it's actually chemotherapy and And I just thought, no, people need to know that yeah. you know he's doing an amazing thing being out there. you know he um you know, with all the the extra tests that they put Dylan through just to make sure that he's was not putting his body body under any extra stress, and he managed to put on muscle during this this whole time when chemotherapy strips your muscles. And he was just he was just such a determined kid to you know not be a cancer patient just to be a professional athlete so i uh, you know i I know that that's largely why he has the admiration from West Ham and the, and the club like uh, like he does because he just was you know he had every reason just to stay in the you know in the in where all the injuries and sick people go and he just refused to be part of that that group of people
0: yeah it one of the things that we've kind of found from speaking to to footballers and other kind of professional athletes, there is a sense of kind of a drive and a determination that's almost unique to, 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 to people who are in that position. So it, it almost, it feels as though, you know, to be able to get to that point, you have to have a certain amount of self-belief and drive and determination and confidence. And so it almost stands to reason that that's how you would take on this challenge as well, I suppose, isn't it? Um, yeah look
1: absolutely absolutely he was really determined he knew what he wanted to do you know I've got a video of him in in 2007 I believe where he actually uh, at their last uh, primary school year and he knew that he wanted to be a footballer on the world stage at that age and and he just made sure that he played and tried to do that
0: yeah in terms of the club itself you talked about kind of the you know the support that they give, and 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 it feels as though throughout the whole process they've been very involved, um, both in terms of the direct support that they gave Dylan during his his treatment, and also to to the charity following um, following his death, and and the support to you as a family. I presume they were they were a big help as a, as an organisation in terms of being able to to go through that that period.
1: Um, I don't know what we would have done without them. Um... I I have nothing but admiration for for Karen Brady and David Sullivan and David Gold and you know and every and their team below them that obviously they reached out to us and you know you have to know what the club's decision is um, or what the expectations are um, when dealing with this and it was whatever the family needs and that's exactly what it was you know from the moment you know they brought Dylan home from from Germany when he passed away. Um, this, you know the service on here flew dylan out to australia and it was just you know they just took a lot of the 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 pressure off us because we were numb we just you know we were numb we just couldn't believe that we could go from this point to this point three years later and lose a son
0: and for you then tracy because i i would presume throughout this this time your efforts are all focused on on Dylan and his recovery and 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 you know you said you went into mum mode I mean I can only imagine the way that my mum would be about it would probably be exactly the same how 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 did you feel during that time in, in terms of you know your own sort of emotions and 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 getting through through what was probably I would imagine an incredibly difficult period
1: yeah look I I um I, for some reason, um, I get bad news. I can't handle bad news. And for five seconds, I can be a heap on the floor. And then I get up and I'm like, right, what do I need to do? So, you know, I, I really like whenever I would actually listen to um, blood test results or you, I knew I had to lay down. I knew that my legs had to be up in the air just to even be able to stand up In you know, and, and get on with it. And, um, yeah, it, it was just one of those things where I was like, well, I can't show that side of me because Dylan wouldn't. Dylan would just say, right, what's the next step? What do we got to do now? I'm ready for this fight. What, what's next? What do I got to do? And he just, he had this wonderful can-do attitude. And there was only there was only one time that I actually saw him inconsolable. And that was um, when he, we went to see the liver specialist and he had to have his liver resected. And they said to him that he would he would need to be out for three months and that many couldn't go to the world cup for the, um, uh, the under twenties. And he was, he was devastated. He was, I, I've never, it was the saddest day seeing him like that, because for me, you know, when Dylan bounds out of bed of a morning and when Dylan's like comes home and, and has something to eat that's, and then races out the door again, it gives you a sense of hope that he's, he's okay. You know, that he's coping well and that this is, you know, just a, a phase that he's going through and that he'll come out the other side of it um so you know he played a huge role in my ability to manage the situation well because you if I'm looking at my son laying in bed curled up you know you're just devastated but the fact that he could go down to training and then come home and then go out to play you know golf or go the driving range just just gave me a sense of hope
0: absolutely and I I was I was I was reading Tracy that there was a there was a point where I think the doctors in this country had said that the the cancer had gotten to a point where it was it was incurable, which I think then led to to Dylan going over to Germany for some for some treatment. How was that in terms of because obviously Dylan's kind of attitude towards it was you know I'll be a cancer patient for a short period of time and then you know we'll get over it and and it'll be a thing in the past rather than a thing of the future if you see what I mean. How yeah. was that? That must have been quite a bit of a blow to you as a as a group.
1: I think, um, I think it was probably more a blow to Jim and I, because, you know, we, are, you know, due to our age, we've been exposed to a lot more people with cancer. And so, you know, that there are some people that, that recover, you know, that there's some people that don't. So I think for Dylan, you know, at the time he'd had a, a round of chemotherapy in, in November um, into the beginning of December, and he, he uh, then went out to um, a, a tournament uh, to play for Australia in Oman in January. So it was when he came back from that, that they turned around and and said to us that we can no longer offer Dylan a cure. And, you know, the hardest thing for us is like, well, what's next, you know? So, you know, we had some recommendations to us and, you know, I I just, I I had in the background that I thought, you know what, Dylan's going to be an example for something? Is, is it an example for the way we look at how cancer is treated? Is it, is it, is it an example for, you know, options for, for treating cancer? Because, you know, this care, chemotherapy is really, really harsh. And so what Germany offered was alternative treatments um, with really, really low dose chemotherapy. And I just I, I had in the back of my mind that I had a son that was so determined that he was actually going to be somebody that left his mark on the world but I thought then that it was in the form of, of the way cancer could be treated or something like that. I, I never in imagined that it would be uh, as a result of his death.
0: And then obviously, you know, tragically in in, in early 2014, that was when when, when Dylan died. I, I mean, I can't even imagine how you must have felt at the time, Tracy. And, and, and you know, you said to me before we started that, you know, sometimes you... you you, emotions maybe get the better of you so to speak and when you have these conversations but you know looking back sort of seven years later are you able to put into words at all how that that felt at that time
1: yeah I mean I I it's I remember it as clear as day because you know Dylan had been in a coma um for about a week and um yeah we we woke up and he was he was going to be no longer with us. And I just remember calling up Taylor and saying, Taylor, you know, you need to get back to the, the, the hospital room. We don't have much more time. And I was in tears. I was devastated. And when, so we were all together when he passed, um, you know, we never got to speak to him, although, you know, I know that he could hear and, you know, we we said our, our lovely words to him. And, um, we were just numb. You know, I remember flying back the next day. You know, we rang up and told um, the team at West Ham. I spoke with the doctor, and within within like the day, they had reached back out to us and said, "You know, this is what we want to do. We play a game on the Saturday against Crystal Palace. We would like to retire Dylan's number. We would like Dylan's uh, shirt to be." Uh, walked out by Jim and and Taylor, um, and do you think that you guys will be able to do that? It, this is what we want to do. If this is okay with you, and uh, the only reason we were able to do it, Daniel, was because we were numb. You know, we just we were we were just going through the motions. We didn't even have time yet to fall in a heap or anything like that. But looking back on it, you know, I just think to myself, you know, how special that they knew in that 24 hours that that's what they wanted to do for Dylan. You know, that this kid had made such an impression on the, the, the club and everyone at it that this 20-year-old boy was going to have his, his number retired.
0: Yeah, I think that you that what you've just said there, Tracy, in terms of the impression that he obviously made on, on everybody at the club. I mean, I, I actually remember you know, as a as a football fan, you know this this you know the the, the whole thing happening and, and the the news reports about it and the the kind of outpouring of emotion from West Ham as a as a club really it, it was quite palpable really and I remember I was reading about um, Mili Edenach was quite um, instrumental in, in in some of the things that he did as well. Did that help that support that you got from the kind of wider footballing community at that time in terms of being you know, providing that emotional support?
1: Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, uh, we, I'd been in touch for most of Dylan's football career with um, uh, uh, one of the, an Australian journalist that was up here that was a um, correspondent uh, for Fox Sport uh, in Daniel Garb. And Daniel put Millet and I together and Jim after the, the game. And, um, you know, Millet um, you know, obviously passed on his condolences um and then, from that day onwards, we kept in touch, and you know the we've been part of their family ever since you know he he was like you know, you're not spending Christmas alone, come spend it with us you know on whenever Dylan's anniversary came up, he would come to the house and spend it with us, and we would reminisce and you know just catch up and you know so he he you know he opened his his family up to us and 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 vice versa, and now we're you know we we're, we're very very close friends and He's a, a patron of the charity, and so is Daniel. And so, yeah, you know, the outpouring and um, just the support we've had is, has been wonderful.
0: And then, I suppose in the in the in the kind of months that, that 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 followed Dylan's death, how how do you, as a family, start to kind of you know, you as a, as a mother and, and and you know Dylan's Dylan's dad and his his brother, and so, how do you kind of start to almost put yourselves back together again, if you see what I mean in in the sort of period afterwards
1: yeah well it's um you know one thing I've found that is that we've all grieved different differently and we all have our own beliefs and I I suppose my coping mechanism has been that uh, I'm quite spiritual and I definitely believe that you know we've we're all on our own path and I believe that our paths are already mapped out for us and you know and and this was Dylan's path and you know that was his message to 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 leave behind and my message to leave behind is is the awareness side of things. So that's that's my coping mechanism. Knowing that that it didn't matter what happened and what we did, that that Dylan was not going to be with us for a long time. And you know, I I stop and think about what he achieved in that time and the people he met and the people that he influenced. You know, he he did more in that twenty years than I've done in my life. And um, you know, so he's he's a he's a very special special kid. Um, you know, I I tried to, you know, when I when I speak with Taylor and that over the first, you know, few years, you know, I would I would just sort of like remind him that, you know, we were very fortunate to spend time with Dylan, um, right up until he passed, and that there's a lot of people out there that are worse off with us, and we're not the first ones to lose, us, lose a lose you know a child, and he's not the first person to lose a brother, and you have to, you know, get on and cope with things, you know, just my attitude is what would dylan do in this and this is what he would do he would just you know get out of bed and and get on with it and that's that's pretty much how i've adapted and how i've tried to instill into into taylor
0: and and you know a uh, number of years on tracy how how do you cope kind of now i know i know it, it, it's one of those things isn't it where i think people say that you know, times a great healer and that type of thing but I suspect it's probably the type of thing that you have to kind of keep check on.
1: Yeah, look, you know, I still I still get very emotional about the conversation. Um, you know, I've learned to try and get out in front of it beforehand, which is why I think that I'm able to, you know, be a spokesman for the charity because it's, it's most of the time me controlling the conversation. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm really proud. You know, I, I stop and think of all the people that have gone through the West Ham Academy and, you know, they've turned around and named a learning centre after my son. And, you know, that is just a, such a huge compliment. I can't even begin to tell you the scale of that compliment. Um, you know, he's got a place in champion's place. He's, he's on the wall up at the in the academy lounge at, at the stadium. Uh, he's got a statue of him back in Perth wishing his mum, you know, a happy birthday with his shin pad. And I just think to myself, wow you know this kid really touched a lot of people and and all i want to do is is make sure that you know that we give such a good account of the charity because he's given such a good account of himself
0: yeah and you you, you've you've referenced the 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 charity dt38 a a, a few times tracy which was started in, in in february of 2015 in terms of the motivation to start the charity and and the you know, the work that you do, what was your kind of vision for for, for what it is you wanted to achieve?
1: Well, when we took Dylan home for his service in Australia, um, you know, um, sitting around with his mates at the wake, um, they were like, Trace, we don't even know what Dylan's symptoms were. We don't even know anything about the disease Dylan had. And it was then I realised that, you know, you know, we didn't even know. So what chance have these young kids got to know what's going on? And, you know, obviously... Uh, that that itself was the driving force to to start a charity up that raised awareness and educated people about testicular cancer and, and I think the biggest shock for me and everything that I've learned is that you know the youngest child has been five months old and the oldest person's been 69 so you know even though we talk about that you know the average age between 15 and and 45 it, you you can get it any so it's not just The individual that needs to know about it, it's mums, it's dads, it's aunties, it's sisters, because you know, there's you have to know, you know, how else is a a five-month-old baby going to detect itself? You know, it's it's a parent's responsibility as well. So, you know, education and and trying to get the, the medical profession to, you know, practice best diagnostic, you know, practices is is really what we're we're trying to do. We we make sure that we can offer free screenings. We do that out in Australia up here you know we've got more um, of a a general access to put people into situations where they can get free screenings I've had um, some friends that you know when this is this has come up they said oh we can't get in to see a doctor for four weeks and I'm like that's just not good enough four weeks is such a Mm. you know it's such a crucial time right now because when it spreads it spreads into your lymph system and um you know, it, then it just travels everywhere. So, you know, we're able to get people in to have a a, a scan within forty eight hours. So, just just things like that 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 I know I'm helping, and I know that it's because of the charity um, that we're able to, you know, just help people get peace of mind because it's nothing nothing you can do except worry when you don't know what's going on with yourself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the slogans on on the website, Tracy, is. Um... Delay is deadly. Get educated, and you talked about the fact that Dylan's friends were talking about, you know, or we didn't know this, or we we didn't know about that. And and you know, one of the sort of common themes that we talk about on this podcast, particularly in relation to to mental health, but it's as as relevant with physical health as well, is that you know young men maybe don't have a, a particularly good grasp on approaching their health and knowing what the signs are they should be looking out for. Do you find that that's something that is in reality true as well in terms of something that you come across quite a lot
1: yeah look i i'm i don't think that men are ignorant at all to the the fact i just think they they have this self-belief that i'll be all right that i'll be okay it'll go away and you know um you know i think more people are you know with stories like this just to say hey here's a kid that had you know his world at his feet he had access to medical and everything he got the best of everything and he still couldn't beat this disease so please don't think that you know you don't need to do anything about it um you know and and you know the, the delay is deadly get educated bit well dylan's nickname in australia was didge his his name was dylan james and dj ended up being you know shortened to didge <laughs> and it's it's the acronym for for didge it's delay is deadly get educated and so you know the book that we have is a, a book that's called didge as well so you know it was just really all to tie in things like that. But yeah, you know, um it testicular cancer has a really good success rate only if it's caught early. And unfortunately, Dylan had a, a, a very rare and fast aggressive disease, but you know, it needed to be fast and aggressive to beat him because otherwise, you know, there would have been no match.
0: Yeah, of course. And and, and I think there is there's a a, a perception possibly around maybe not just footballers, but, but athletes generally, and, you know, if you're fit and sporty and, 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 you know, you're athletic, that maybe you, you kind of won't get sick. We've obviously seen very recently in the, only in the last few days, Michael Appleton, um, who's a, a, a current EFL uh, manager has, has, yeah. has been diagnosed with testicular cancer. Do you yeah. think there is maybe the the, 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 the needs to be a way of us kind of reframing how we look at it with regards to athletes as well, that maybe may change that, that, that conversation for, you know, for, for everybody else.
1: Well, what I think that it needs to, um, needs to happen is that, you know, it just goes to show that it can happen to anyone. You know, I mean, um, I know Michael. would, if he's been around football and he's a coach, he's been around it all his life and I'm sure that, you know, he's, he's in the best of health that he can be um, or, you know, or has been um, and it just goes to show you, it doesn't matter whether you are in the best shape of your life or the, you know, probably need a little bit of work, whatever, um, is that you have to take your health seriously. And, you know, I, I'm pleased to, you know, to reach out to him and, and say, you know, we wish you all your best and we hope your journey is, you know, is a successful one because um, it really can be a disease that is, is successful uh, if, if diagnosed early.
0: Tracy, that is, um, that's kind of all the questions that, that I had written down that I wanted to ask you. I just want to say big thank you for for, for agreeing to come on and speaking with us. And um, the listeners obviously can't see you, but uh, you've got probably the best hairdo of anyone we've had on the uh, on the podcast. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much, Tracy. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And um, yeah, it's uh, you know it's 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 an honor for us to have people like you on on the podcast.
1: No, look, I really appreciate you having me on, Daniel, because you know it it's I know your listeners out there. Um, you know, probably curious about a little bit more in, in depth into Dylan's story and a little bit personal and, and hopefully, you know, um the story I'm telling will will help somebody, maybe directly or indirectly, uh help someone else that might show for symptoms with testicular cancer.
0: Just wanna say a huge thank you to Tracy for coming on the podcast today. It as you know you will have heard throughout that episode. It's still seven years on, an incredibly difficult thing for any mother to have to talk about. And so we are hugely, hugely appreciative of Tracy giving up some time and coming to speak to us. It's, you know, a really sad story. And, you know, I think that the biggest thing that I came away with from that interview was admiration for Tracy as a person, but also admiration for their family and also for the work that they're now doing through the DT38 Foundation. And most importantly of all, an incredible amount of admiration for Dylan, you know, as a young man going through what he was going through, and the, you know, the way he represented himself was, you know, extraordinary. I think we can take an enormous amount from from that. So, you know, from the bottom of our hearts, everyone at man Mark and I just want to say thank you to Tracy for for giving us their time and telling us that story. If you want to learn a little bit more about Dylan and about the DT Thirty Eight Foundation, then head over to their website, which is dt thirty eight co dot uk, and you can of course um, find them on Twitter there handle is at Dylan Tom Beatties, which is T-O-M-B-I-D-E-S and you can find us on Twitter as well uh, our, our handle is at Mark underscore man and don't forget to use the hashtag where's the talking lads now we'll be back again on Monday with another interview and this time it'll be with Ross Lee uh, who is a uh, sort of becoming quite a famous gardener so it was really interesting to talk to, to Ross about his story and how he's gone from um, homelessness and drug addiction to being a being a sort of online gardener so it it very much worth listening to to that one so thank you to you for listening and we'll see you next time